0: This podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change.
1: Today's podcast features Dr. Angie Perrone, who is the Congressional Health Policy Fellow in Senator Tammy Baldwin's office, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Fellow at the National Academy of Medicine. She earned her Ph.D. in social work and sociology from U of M in 2021, and is a CEW Scholar alum. Prior to pursuing her Ph.D., Angie was a successful civil rights lawyer for several years, including supervising the elder law project at the national center for lesbian rights and she is the founding executive director at sage metro detroit which focuses on services and advocacy for lgbt older adults as of july 1 she's also a tenure track assistant professor at the university of california berkeley school of social welfare where she will also lead at Center for the Advanced Study of Aging Services. Angie, welcome to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your story?
2: Sure. Well, it is delightful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And I feel like you just gave me a phenomenal introduction. I don't know. I mean, I think that um, I think in terms of just adding a little bit more context to my story, I see myself persistently wearing three different hats always simultaneously, whereas I'm a civil rights attorney, community-based social worker, and interdisciplinary scholar under the umbrella of equitable aging. And so that's where my work and my passions, lie. I've done a lot of work um, in particular in LGBTQ aging, you know, that's one area, but I've also, as a civil rights attorney, I also had a really important thread of work that was focused on workers' rights And so right now, I'm also really interested and focused on workers and protecting the rights and also making sure that workers who are serving older adults are protected and and not experiencing discrimination. And in particular, this has come up a lot in terms of nursing homes or long-term care facilities, um, long-term care um, in the community as well, so home health aides. And then also making sure that older adults who are receiving those services are protected. So I see my my work right now intersecting workers' rights and the rights of older adults since under this larger caregiving lens.
1: Yeah, caregiving is so important right now, especially we all saw it through COVID when caregiving facilities were shut down, uh, closed, yeah. and then also within senior centers where they were Um, closed to the public, so seniors weren't able to access their families and friends. Um, What are the main things that you're advocating for among the older adult population?
2: So I'm advocating, and I'm always going to say I, it's always a collection of people. So I really work closely and I believe strongly in collaboration and team projects, teamwork, because I myself don't have any of the answers alone. I don't think any of us do. But I would say that I think the solutions to whatever problems that we're navigating are, are almost always multifaceted. So if you take example of nursing homes in how there's been a lot in the news, a lot in policy circles about the need for reform, which isn't new, it's been an issue for decades, but there are there's a lot more attention onto doing that, particularly as COVID has really transformed the landscape and we saw some of the highest mortality rates among that particular population of older adults in nursing homes, and that continues to be the case. And as well as the workers that work at nursing homes. And so I think the solutions right, you know, right there, there's some policies or some pieces of legislation or executive orders or state or federal regulatory proposals that are focusing specifically on increasing the number of nurses required in, in facilities or focusing on pay or focusing on a number of other sorts of issues relating to staffing. There's another thread that's focusing specifically on quality of care and making sure that we have enough measures to evaluate how older adults are being treated and served and what kind of care they're receiving, and making sure that that's all visible and accessible to the public. So we can just go to the federal government website and be able to see exactly which facility has what kinds of violations and help inform us of making decisions for our own care or loved ones care. And so there's a lot of different solutions being proposed. Another one that I think is often under proposed, but really important, um, although it did make it into a really recent report by the National Academies of Medicine, which is culture change and really reimagining what caregiving spaces can look like when someone does need a higher level of care outside of the home. I always think the best solutions are those that cover a variety of different avenues, and those are always the hardest. So when I think of solutions, I think of short-term solutions and then long-term solutions. And the long-term solutions are almost always culture change, but getting there requires stepping stones from the short-term solutions, some of the things that I've mentioned, as well as thinking short-term and Mm long-term.
1: So it's kind of like how at CEW we think about constantly, what are things that students will notice now or that staff will notice now? And then how do we create the long-term systemic change alongside that so that it's better for the long run and not just for the current batch of students? Exactly. Exactly. Like I've got two elders um, that you know we care for. One is my partner's mom, and then another Mm -hmm. is a friend of ours who's ninety-five. What are the types of things that we can do to advocate for them?
2: Well, I think it depends on what kinds of needs those individuals have. So I think more macro, big picture advocacy lens would be raising issues of aging and just even older adults, like the existence and visibility of older adults into the public consciousness and into spaces where we're having conversations with each other, into conversations in the media. I can tell you, it was very frustrating for me when I was working with Sage Metro Detroit, which was the only organization in Michigan that focuses exclusively on LGBTQ older adults. And I would be in these spaces where I would have, and this was during the beginning of the pandemic, so I'd be in spaces that were predominantly sort of LGBTQ plus organizations. And then I would be in separate spaces focused on aging services. And so often in the LGBTQ space, the conversations often focused on youth, the needs of youth, um, and very little attention was drawn to older adults, even though those were the communities that were were dying during Mm -hmm. the pandemic, especially Mm -hmm. before the vaccine. And then in the older adult communities or in the communities, organizations and meetings that I attended with providers for aging services, there was virtually no attention to the needs of the LGBTQ plus community. And so I think, you know, and this is not a new issue. It's an issue that, you know, exists for, for all of us as we navigate the needs of sort of underrepresented communities and the intersections among those underrepresented communities. And so I think visibility is always important. And when we're thinking about older adults, raising that visibility and the needs of the, the diverse needs of, of our older adults is really, really important. So that to me is like step one. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's, it's one of those, it's a short term and a long term solution because it needs to persistently happen. And then I think, you know, I, I'm currently in a, in a policy role and I have to say everything I'm saying is on my personal role and not in the capacity of, of my role as senator's office. But I will say I was shocked at actually how much the constituents, how much their voices are heard, because I've definitely participated in many letter writing campaigns, or, you know, you get a message and email where it says, call your senator or or, sign on to this comment or, or whatever. And I just sort of thought they went into this, like, void. And, you know, maybe it was like a number counting. And there's some degree of that. But also, they really are paying attention to what constituents say, and it might vary office to office. But I think we as community members have a lot more voice than maybe we feel like we do, given what we're hearing on the news. And so I think in terms of actual like official or sort of formal advocacy, we can actually call and you can actually call your member of Congress and ask for a meeting. And maybe if you're remote, it can be a virtual meeting, but they will give you a meeting, you know, and it may be with a staff member, but that staff member is often the person who's actually drafting the policies. So it's great to actually meet with a staff member. So in terms of formal advocacy, I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize that we actually have a lot more power to do. And there's this idea that the rich, well-paid lobbyists are the ones who are making change. And that, I mean, you know, you can't ignore the power of, there's some aspect about that in DC for sure. But there's a lot of nonprofits that don't have that kind of background. And that's, so they don't have high-powered lobbyists who are drafting bills and and writing important policies that are being formed by the community. And so there's a lot that we can do to advocate that's much under the radar and sort of invisible. And again, I'm sort of thinking of more formal ways to elevate issues of aging and support for older adults. And we all, you know, issues relating to aging and providing caregiving is new, which it often is for a lot of people. We sort of stumble into this or a lot of us sort of stumble into this or an interest in in aging and providing services or care from our own personal experiences of caregiving. So, you know, we become experts in our own space and that's power too. I mean, our personal experiences, our personal journeys of providing care provides our first layer of knowledge and experience that we can use to advocate for the services that we need or the services that our loved ones need. So I think there's a lot of different ways to advocate both formally and informally. I think the first one is just raising awareness and visibility, but then also recognizing our own power and our abilities to do things that might exist outside of formal or non-traditional advocacy rules.
1: Yeah, that's great. When I look at, you know, what you're doing at Sage Metro Detroit, um, can you talk through what are some of the specific challenges with LGBTQ older adults?
2: Sure. And just to clarify, so I'm no longer the executive director. We hired a okay. new one when I... Um, transitioned into this role with the senator um, or with this um, RWJF fellowship. And so, but I can tell you sort of generally from my experience there um, and my continued work in that area. So there are a couple of key issues that continuously resurface. And one is that LGBTQ plus older adults tend to be less likely to have biological caregiving networks. And so are often more reliant on same age peers to provide caregiving and caregiving can be broadly construed as you know actual helping with purchasing meals and shopping driving someone to their medical appointments or driving someone to go get groceries actually making the meals some people are helping other friends with bathing and and all sorts of different activities but also just being a social companion and providing that social support on a regular basis and, and emotional support is also caregiving and so that primarily happens in this community with folks of the same age. And so that means that people are experiencing aging, you know, some of the health issues that can accompany aging uh, simultaneously, whereas with intergenerational or multigenerational caregiving, you might have a child, a biological child, or someone who's taking care of an older adult. And so they're not experiencing some of the same, you know, maybe mobility issues or you know driving limitations or what have you. So that creates some challenges in terms of support and networks. And certainly with COVID, especially in the early part of the pandemic, we saw people were passing away and and networks of support were dwindling significantly. And so that was a huge challenge. And then the other issue was that. We have higher rates of health disparities and, and a number of other disparities in terms of economic um, disparities, higher rates of poverty than cisgender and heterosexual uh, peers. There's also higher rates of social isolation. And all of these things are, of course, related. Decades of discrimination create these structural realities that prevent people from having the same kinds of money to find affordable housing and, and things like that. So I think those are some of the core issues. But I also want to note, though, that this is a community, and this is not a homogenous community, of course. These are folks that are variety, is very diverse communities within itself. We have a significant amount of strength and resilience within the community because of, well, I mean, (laughs) necessity. (laughs) So I think that there's, you know, we certainly saw also during the beginning of the pandemic, there were both Individuals that we worked with who were really re-traumatized or re-triggered from the AIDS epidemic during the beginning of the COVID pandemic because of the level of loss that they were experiencing and the level of guilt that they were experiencing for surviving that was remnant or it seemed to mirror some of their earlier experiences in the late 80s and early 90s. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: But also some really creative caregiving solutions that were developed, I think, also from the AIDS epidemic that they were reinvigorating during the COVID Pandemic, and so there's a lot of creativity in the community that exists, I think, because of necessity, but also has provided a lot of good things in the community that I think are are certainly something that have even been picked up outside of the LGBTQ community. So, for example, we were really focused heavily on telephone support as opposed to Zoom support in, in one area of our community, where that just made more sense. And so we had a pretty robust um, telephone buddy program that was intergenerational and it was really successful. And so we ended up getting, and this was something we had developed before the pandemic. So it was something that a lot of people were turning to at the beginning of the pandemic. And we had this great model that we were able to share with organizations outside of Detroit, outside of even the country. We had an organization that was focused in Scandinavia that was really interested in this model that implemented it. So, and these were not LGBTQ plus communities either. So I think there's a lot to be learned from the experiences here as well.
1: Interesting. Why telephone and not Zoom? Well, for a couple of
2: reasons. I will say we had a lot of individuals that we served that originally were very resistant to Zoom that then became like lovers of Zoom. They just really liked that option. But we did have a group of folks who didn't feel comfortable being visually shown. They didn't feel comfortable using the technology. We had issues with bandwidth and Internet bandwidth capacity, which we were constantly trying to help and navigate. But the reality is there were just some spaces that, or some buildings or different circumstances that didn't really provide a lot of options for internet or being able to connect in very accessible, reliable ways. So there were a number of different reasons for different individuals. And then there were some other kinds of, you know, Zoom, I think it's gotten better. I, when I say Zoom, I, I mean sort of the constellation of all of those kinds of platforms, mm-hmm. they're still working on making them a little more age-friendly. So I think they've gotten better. And I will say Zoom, I think, is one of the better ones compared to some of the other less age-friendly platforms. But that does create, I think, a barrier, certainly did create a barrier for some of our older adults as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, this is really interesting. So as a lesbian couple with a child, um, we I've seen yeah. a lot of what you're talking about, but hadn't thought about it in this way, of how yeah. our friends really are relying on us and we really rely on our son for the social support mm-hmm. that we need because uh, some, you know, might have difficult family relationships from their childhood families. Um, yep. Some haven't been able to have children or chose not to. And all of that yep. just complicates what it means to be aging, which is a new perspective that, you know, is important to have discussions about even among my own social group. Um, yep. it's, yeah. It's a really in- interesting conversation that um, I'll definitely carry forward with me. Um, you know, yeah. as, as, even in reading your uh, bio at the beginning here, it looks like you've made a couple of interesting changes, you know, very career-deeping moves, um, you know, particularly returning to school to earn your MSW and PhD. What motivated you and how has it changed the scope of your work?
2: Yeah, I think that's a, a fun question to kind of reflect upon. So. When I, so I was practicing as a civil rights attorney, um, I'd been practicing for eight years and I was at my dream institution. I, and I still feel very, um, a huge amount of respect for this institution. It's called the National Center for Lesbian Rights. It's a fantastic organization. They do great work. So I was doing the work that I really wanted to do as a lawyer, which was kind of a combination of both litigation, where I was writing briefs at sort of trial levels, but also at appellate levels. So I was, you know, doing different levels of brief writing and representing clients and administrative and court procedures. And I was also working with community members on education and trainings and policy work. So it was sort of this like great hybrid of work. And I absolutely loved it. But because civil rights, because our legal system, our American legal system is based on precedent, in theory <laughs> it, it really relies on the idea that our our previous case law is guiding our future case law which means that it is really hard to change law through the courts and any sort of reasonable timeline because you're constantly trying to find the sort of needle in the haystack or find the creative argument that basically frames the civil rights issue that you have that's you know if, if particularly particular group has been denied a particular set of rights and you have to use old case law to make the argument mm-hmm. and it just sets it just sets up so many barriers for civil rights you sort of use the traditional stuff which is right you use the regular case law and there's a whole set of procedures that lawyers use when they're filing briefs that are pretty standard but we also i think in the civil rights community if you are working and representing communities that aren't really granted or have been denied a lot of rights um, historically you have to be creative and so you know dating back to brown versus board of education lawyers started to use social science to infuse their arguments or to you know to really strengthen their their arguments and show that look the case law may be <laughs> mediocre in terms of supporting this issue although we never say that but um, but we also, there is this other really important data that we need to incorporate and, and share with you to really strengthen our argument. And we were using a lot more social science research in our cases that were really effective and, and really helpful. And I just found myself kind of gravitating more to trying to understand that world as, as a really another really important tool to creating social change or helping move laws and policy forward. Um, and so I found myself working with experts and, and doing a lot more of this and wanting to to learn it myself. So that's ultimately what motivated me to to sort of transition into getting a Ph.D. and um, some graduate degrees at the University of Michigan. I really wanted to better understand how to how to use that tool to affect social change in, in conjunction with the law as well.
1: You had mentioned early on how you really wear three hats in all the work that you do. Like between your social work degree, your legal background, um, your policy work, how does that all intersect to inform how you create change?
2: I think they're constantly informing each other and in ways that I think are not even super visible, but are just almost automatic in the way that I think and the way that I work. And I think this is just sort of how I operate since like forever. And, you know, I mean, I, I can think of even my college degree it was in, like individualized plans of study, which was basically like, that's what my degree says. And it's this idea that, you know, I took a lot of different disciplinary courses in different disciplines and created a path that made sense to me. And so I, I really have always kind of been an interdisciplinary person and, and I'm always looking at like different ways that we can solve a problem. But I, I really don't believe that you can solve a problem with just one lens, even whether that's discipline or whether you know whatever that lens may be because most problems are just too complex. And so I, I think my, these different hats that I'm using help me see different options as well as barriers and then opportunities from other ways. Um, it is really challenging because all of, we're still somewhat siloed in different disciplines and di- different disciplinary areas. And so you know I feel like I'm constantly having to, you know, change the language that I'm using, depending on the audiences that I'm talking to, because a legal crowd that's predominantly focused on sort of traditional legal work, they're not going to have the same language as, say, social work. And social work doesn't have the same language that sociology has. Even though they may be really attacking a problem really similarly, they, they wouldn't necessarily talk about it in the same way. And so, I think it's a helpful tool in terms of translation and communication, but it is, it is quite challenging. And, you know, I feel for, for all the other folks that are doing that work. And I think there's a lot more people doing that than, than even realize it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how you code switched even in this interview of at the beginning. I heard you mention macro and I'm like, oh, social work. And then you're talking about case <laughs> law just so fluidly, like adjusting <laughs> the language in answering different yeah. questions. Uh, so um, I see that you started a new position at UC Berkeley in the School of Social Welfare on July 1st. Um, can you tell me a bit about the Center for the Advanced Study of Aging Services and uh, what you're hoping to learn there?
2: Yeah, so I'm really excited about this. So this is a Really, a center. It's housed in the School of Social Welfare, which is exciting. And it's really focused on sort of improving services for older adults by taking a multifaceted approach through research, community collaboration, and education. And again, I'm thinking of community broadly. So community is the actual sort of community members, the community leaders. I think policymakers are part of our community. And then also students are part of the community. I mean, there's just different communities. And so we, we are really looking at involving all you know this, this wide constellation of, of people and groups to make aging services better for, for older adults. And so while it's, you know, it's, it's a center, which tends to be sort of more perceived as like a research space, and it certainly is, the mission really is, it's really focused on this broad approach that's going to out- actually help on the ground, as well as help with, you know, through education of our students as well.
1: Yeah, that's great, meaningful work. When you think about if you could provide advice to yourself when you were in school, you know, what advice might you give to current CEW scholars for pursuing a meaningful career?
2: I think there are a couple of things. So I think that one is, I mean, CEW itself is such a great network of support and I think tapping into that is really helpful. Um, But also university of Michigan is such a large institution and also has a lot of resources that are sometimes known and sometimes unknown. And so I think places like CEW and others can help, um, help us navigate some of those known and unknown resources, especially when, you know, you're at an institution as large as the University of Michigan that, I mean, it's so well networked. I mean, there are so many alum. I mean, I was just at an event last night for my work, and I had a U of M, like, lunchbox. And then from a the distance, I heard, go blue. <laughs> I You just, I, you know, no matter where you are, there's a U of M person. And so there's a lot of privilege and, and power that I think is 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 comes from actually coming and being a, an alum of this institution, which means that there are resources that we have both here, again, whether they're known or unknown, as well as after we graduate. And I think it can feel really frustrating for a lot of folks at such a large institution where there are a lot of challenges for, I think, a lot of people at the U of M for a variety of reasons, whether it's a lack of racial representation or linguistic representation. There, there are a lot of challenges. But I think in, there are also the school just has such a strong network of support and resources that you just other schools don't have. And so I think that really benefits us in terms of our career trajectory going forward, whatever career trajectory that, that may be, is having a really large network of mentors or potential mentors moving forward. Um, and people really want to help. you know. I think just reaching out and asking for information, you know, those informational interviews, I, I don't even like to think of them as interviews, but just like, I just want to hear about you and hear about your work. People love to talk about what they do. And so I, it's a great way to tap into that, whether it's through CEW or some other sort of community at U of M. And then the other thing I think that is at least I I will just speak about from my own personal experience that's helped me is really honoring and trying to remember like what motivates me and and why I want to do something that I want to do, right? So because it's easy to get – and this is also something at U of M, because there are so many opportunities, it's easy, I think, to get drawn into a particular – maybe a particular path that might not be actually what you are – passionate about or that you're interested in, because it's an opportunity that presented itself. And that's exciting. But also, you know, you want to remember, feel comfortable and confident in in your own desires of what you want to do. And, and I can also give you some examples of different places in my career where someone told me, you will never succeed if you go this route, right? So for example, Mm -hmm. I had earlier in my career, I I was told, first of all, so many examples, of this. (laughs) don't (laughs) become a civil rights attorney, because it's first of all, it's really, really hard to get a job at a. Civil, it's really, really hard to get a job at a nonprofit. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but it's incredibly hard to get a job at a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. It's, it's surprisingly hard, despite the fact that the pay is really low. So I was told, don't even try. It's better for you to be strategic and focus on these different paths. But I really, really wanted to do nonprofit work, and so I mean, I did do different types of legal work, but I really focused heavily on doing all sorts of non-traditional things to like find that path. And that sometimes it's what's needed, but I, I really had to drown out those voices that said, don't do that. And similarly in sort of the research space, there were a couple of people that said, don't focus on LGBT stuff. Don't focus on research in that community because it's not considered meaningful. It's not considered credible. It's not considered real research. And yeah, you know what? That's probably true. Some people might consider that, but, Oh, well, Like I do. Con- it actually is real research. So you just, you know, be comfortable and find mentors who can help you drown out those voices because it's, it's hard, but it's possible. And, and there's a, there are a lot of people that can help push back against that, whether it's internally or externally.
1: That's great advice. I wish I had gotten that when I was starting my PhD in the nineties. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Angie, this has been so engaging and I, I really appreciate your work and all that you're doing to create change. Um, and I'm so appreciative that um, you are willing to take this time with me today. Thank you for being on, on this podcast.
0: Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW Plus, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the Three Fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.